Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture, our Lutheran Confession of Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for catechesis. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. He is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in LaBerne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Concord Matters. Well, thank you, Sean, so much. It is always a pleasure to be on KFUO and especially to be here with you on Concord Matters. Yeah, it really is a great pleasure to have you on Concord Matters. I love having you on. You have excellent confession of the faith for us every time. And uh, as I've shared before when I've had you on, we were classmates in seminary, and so I'm familiar with a bit of your background, and I happen to know, especially in terms of your doctoral work and so forth, that the matter of catechesis really is something that you're passionate about, done a lot of study in, and as I said, know that you're really well-spoken on these matters as well. And so great to have you on and have you available to do this episode. Go ahead and share for our listeners a little bit of your background and your experience in the church of why catechesis has become something that is so important for you. Well, sure. Well, just to sort of take it back to the kind of the beginning, I grew up in Western North Carolina in the Bible Belt. And so if you know anything about this area, then you will know that there's not a whole lot of Lutherans. And so I didn't even know what a Lutheran was until I was in college and I was taking a class on world religions and they snuck in Lutheranism somewhere around Zoroastrianism. So I hadn't even heard of Lutheranism. In my upbringing, I was raised in a Christian household. We, uh, there was never a point at which I don't remember believing in Jesus, but I was baptized in the Southern Baptist tradition. At uh, 14, I went to Haiti as a missionary while we were going to a Methodist church, and I went there along with some Pentecostal women. I have worshipped with the Moravian church and just all sorts of different church traditions and denominations that I experienced, me and my dad, growing up. And so there's this idea down south that says, well, it doesn't matter where you go, only that you go, right? So it doesn't matter where you go to church, only that you're going somewhere. And even back then, even as a teenager, I saw some of the problems with that. As we went from church to church, and my dad would tell me, well, son, sometimes you have to just take the good stuff and leave the bad stuff. The problem is I never really had a good grasp on which was the good stuff and which was the bad stuff. I knew that the Bible was supposed to be the source of all our knowledge, but one thing that was consistent with all these churches is that 
they all believed in the Bible. They all said they did. They all taught from the Bible, or at least they said they did. And so when I would go from these different churches and I would notice all these differences, some of them minor and some of them very large, I just knew that they all couldn't be right. And so it wasn't until I was well into adulthood, I was married, living in an apartment with my wife, that we finally found our way into the Lutheran church. In fact, we got a knock on the door, and there was a Baptist pastor from right down the road inviting us to church, and it had been a couple years since my wife and I had even been to church. And so we went to his church, and when we arrived, they were actually not having worship that Sunday. They were having like an Awana ceremony or something like that. So we drove around looking for a church to go to, and we saw the Lutheran church, but we weren't sure we really wanted to go there because we didn't know much about them. It wasn't until the next Sunday that we found ourselves going to an LCMS church, and I remember that for the first time, I had heard the gospel preached. I was enamored with the fact that the liturgy was built on us hearing the Word of God and then speaking the Word of God back. And I was also pretty floored with the idea that they were having communion on the Sunday that I showed up. I wasn't allowed to take it, but I was surprised because in the Baptist tradition, communion isn't held very often at all, at least not in the tradition that I grew up in. So my point is, I went to the pastor and I said, listen, I'm really fascinated with this church body. And he pointed me to the Book of Concord. And it was through my study of the Book of Concord that for the first time in my Christian life, I didn't feel like I had to take some and leave some. You know, the things that I knew the Bible taught resonated with me, and then the things that I didn't understand, I found support in the practices and teachings of the church and, of course, in the Bible. And so I found the Lutheran Church, and then through the catechesis that I received in the Lutheran Church, it led me to confessional teaching, and it led me to why it's important that churches have confessions because that's where the unity comes from. And so when you talk about Concord Matters for Catechesis, I think it's also wise to say that catechesis matters for Concord. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that point up from your background about how they all said that they believed the Bible. You know, that is a very Southern mentality. I did my vicarage down in Louisiana. And so, yeah, definitely that Bible Belt mentality down there. But even present in just broad Christianity and American Christianity, I would say, is that you do commonly see this come up where they say, oh, yeah, we believe the Bible. But what does that mean? And I've been fascinated how often as I've been doing this Concord Matters series, that has really come up. And that really is kind of central to what we're doing when we're talking about our Concord is, well, what does that mean? What does the Bible have to say? And so it really takes it to the next step, if you will, which is a step that you were taking in your life. And so maybe it's a good place to even start as we're talking about here so what does the Bible have to say then as far as catechesis as our direct focus here today? Well, right. So when I think of the Scripture's mandate to teach the faith, I think one of the most excellent places is in Deuteronomy 6. It's a passage that a lot of people are going to be familiar with. So I'm going to read a little bit of that. We find in Deuteronomy 6, the Scriptures say, 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So, so far, we have Moses accepting his role to teach the people the commands and the statutes of God. And then he's passing that role on to parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, etc., etc. And so we see here that parents have this duty to pass on the traditions of the faith, the tenets of the faith, to their children. Now, I'm not too much of a Hebrew scholar, but I did notice that the word diligently here, where in verse 7 when it says, you shall teach them, that is the statutes, diligently to your children and talk of them, etc., that word diligently comes from the Hebrew word shanan, which contains the nuance of like repetition over and over, like sharpening a knife on a whetstone. It's something that you would do continuously over and over in order to get the desired results. And so we see that not only are church leaders responsible for passing on the tenets of the faith, but parents are responsible on making disciples, like Jesus would say, by constantly exposing their children to our beliefs. And that's basic catechesis. That just came up last week as well when we talked about Concord Matters for the Confessional Family with the Reverend President John Hill. He even brought that up in his own life. I was commending him. He was very influential. He was my wife's pastor for many years as she was a teacher in a classical Lutheran school out in Wyoming. And he just simply said that exactly what you lined out from Scripture, which is, well, I'm just passing on what I receive from others. And that really is the Christian life and well framed for us right there in Scripture and brings in the parents in connection with the church leaders, as you say there, Moses being the example of that as well. He gives it to the parents. This is your responsibility, as God would have you do. And that's not really even the only place that it comes up in Scripture, right? Oh, no. I mean, it comes up over and over, but I think just this idea of the importance of teaching, we need to realize that this isn't something that, well, like I tell my confirmands, when I'm up there teaching them the tenets of the faith, I say, listen, I'm not doing this because I get anything personal out of it, except for the fact that I get the opportunity to share with you on behalf of your parents what we believe and teach and confess so that hopefully you'll pick that up too and then pass it along. So even Jesus, how does he say that we make disciples, right? When Christ instituted baptism, he commanded that something should always follow baptism. Now, when I ask my confirmants this, sometimes they'll say a dry towel should always follow baptism. But no, what does he say? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And it's because of that or through that that he'll be with us always till the end of the age. God goes with us when we walk in his statutes and pass them along, which is why the book of Concord is so important, right? Because if we just have the Bible, isn't that enough? Well, the Bible certainly is the norm of our faith and belief. But like I said before, I grew up where everybody had the Bible, and yet they had different interpretations. Why? Well, because the way they interpret the Bible changes. Some people may see the grammar of the text being paramount, where others might say, no, it's my own personal inspiration that matters. So all these different hermeneutical methods change what the Bible says. And people, of course, bring their own experience and their own baggage to the text. So the wonderful thing about confessions that I discovered is that they keep us honest. They keep us in line with the historic church. They help mitigate the fact that we're coming to the Bible text with some of our own thoughts and our own experiences and our own ideas, which sometimes can taint what we believe and teach. And so that's why the confessions are so important. That's why, for the most part, you can go from one LCMS church to another, to another, to another, or call an LCMS-trained pastor, and then another and another, and not have to worry that the doctrine's going to dramatically shift because of where you go or who's the preacher. And I think that's a really excellent point, especially as we consider we're not exempt from the distortions coming in and there being unfaithfulness and straying just because we're Lutherans. I mean, it certainly happens to us as well, but I think your point is well made there that the confessions help pass on from generation to generation that faithful teaching of Scripture. And I would say that not even brings unity within the church today as we hold to that, but that as you look at the Lutheran church today, where we are faithful to the confessions, it's the Lutheran church of previous generations all the way back to Luther, right? And as Luther professed at his own day, it's the faithful Christian church back to the apostles. And that's the continuity and the passing on that we see. And again, I like what you said there. This is a matter of diligence. It's continually doing it. I love bringing in that Hebrew word from Scripture that you brought in there for us, that we're going to continually do this. And that's what our confessions are about, is that we're continuing to do this. And I think, well, did you want to make a point there? No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's what's really interesting is because even though we find that in the scriptures, it hasn't always been that way. This sort of systemized method of catechizing our children or passing down the faith has not always been in the church. It's been very contextual. It's been very organic. Parents pass it down to their kids, and that should still happen. But when it comes to confessions, that's a real systematic way of presenting the faith. And that's something that developed over time. Confessions themselves arise out of the need to settle disputes. So early on, the closer you are to the events that happen, the fewer the amount of disputes there are in terms of what happened and who said what. But as the church goes on and as different interpretations start to take hold that may not be consistent with the truth, then all of a sudden there's conflict and dispute. And so confessions arise out of this desire to say, this is the truth according to the scriptures, according to what the church has always believed, and this is false. And so those sorts of things came around 
before creeds and confessions came around before catechesis came on the scene. In fact, formal catechesis only arose in response to persecution. As the church began to be persecuted, there were lots of opportunities for people to be joining the church that may not have had the best intentions. And so all of a sudden there was this need to examine people according to their life, to see if they lived the life that they claimed that they lived, and examine them according to their beliefs, and certainly raise up people who didn't know what to believe. And so in the early church, formal catechesis was almost non-existent in the New Testament church, but then developed over time. And it usually took place, well, for youth and adults prior to baptism, and then continued sort of informally after that. But if you were baptized as an infant, then formal catechesis would follow, of course. But then by the mid-2nd century, baptisms were taking place annually during the Vigil of Easter. And so when that became systematized, then they started to follow a period of instruction and investigation into the life of the catechumen. And I don't know that we do that much today. I know we certainly raise them up in the teachings by catechizing them, but how often are we examining them as they would have in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 4th centuries to see if the way they're living is consistent with their beliefs? A couple of things come to mind as you were talking there. First, you were highlighting the difference between formal catechesis and the teaching, the passing on of the faith. And I think maybe a few more words on that might be helpful for us, because I think sometimes we tend to maybe oversimplify and just say, well, catechesis is teaching the faith. But you brought out here for us that there is a development of that catechesis, of the formal catechesis, and the examination that comes in right there at the end that you were talking about as well. Say just a little bit more about that. What's the difference here in what we're talking about in teaching the faith and passing it on, which has been a part of Scripture, as you said, even back Moses brings that in, and this formal catechesis that we're talking about? Well, in some ways, the formal catechesis, we, we may have gotten ourselves in trouble with that. So passing down the faith, as I said, is an organic thing that happens as Moses would say, you know, when you're talking with them, as you're sitting in your house, when you're walking down the road, when you're about to lie down, when you get up in the morning, you know, all parents are teachers of their children, and what they teach them differs based on whatever the parent is doing. So it would have been a normal, ordinary thing. They wouldn't have necessarily set time aside for devotions. They would have just talked about their belief in God. It would have been something that permeated their everyday life. Whereas the church began to sort of take on that role because of all sorts of reasons, but primarily because the church was wanting to make sure that the true faith was consistently being passed down. So this natural or organic catechesis is whenever we're teaching our children or other people what it means to be a Christian. And then the formal catechesis, which developed over time, was a much more systematic approach. And by that, I mean they're looking for ways in order to communicate to people the faith so that they can then communicate them to other people. Basically, it's a lot more like the difference between your dad teaching you something, how to fix the car in the garage, and going to a class where they're teaching you how to fix cars from a book. Both are actually valuable, but they are certainly different, as you pointed out. And I don't think that you would say that this negates the point that 
you clearly would have seen a systemized catechesis, a formal catechesis, as you say, even present in the Old Testament. And Christians are drawing on this. You still see it in Judaism today that you have that formal instruction that goes on within the Old Testament Judaism as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm mostly talking about the early church because the way catechesis was done in the early church changed dramatically around the fourth century. And it was because the church was beginning to grow and encountering some of these novel and sometimes heretical ideas about the faith that they decided that they needed to be a lot more strict. And there were different approaches, too. There were approaches where the life of the person was paramount to investigate whether this person who wants to become part of the church is worthy, so to speak, of being part of the church. I mean, where none of us are worthy, but to make sure that they weren't an enemy of the church. And then the other emphasis, which eventually won out the day, was what do they know? And what do they know about the faith? And what is it that they can believe and teach others and confess? And so it was not that catechesis in a formal way wasn't happening. It's that the complexity of it increased as things like heresies were denounced, as different sects came on the scene. There was this need to make sure that more and more doctrines were taught in a particular manner. So they weren't as concerned about things like whether or not Jesus was truly 100% God and 100% man until someone like Arius stepped up on the scene and said that he wasn't. And so as these different pushes for false teaching came out, then catechesis became a lot more systematized. Right. And that's what I think is times were difficult for the church and the faith becomes more important for how you're intentionally living it, I guess you might say. And so you already begin to see the connection then of why the Lutheran confessors would include, say, like Martin Luther's small and large catechisms in the Book of Concord. You know, I think it might seem somewhat obvious that when we say Concord matters for catechesis, you would say, well, yeah, of course, because the small and large catechisms are included in the Book of Concord. But why did the confessors include them in the Book of Concord? And what makes up the rest of the Book of Concord that helps us to see what we're talking about here and why Concord really does matter for catechesis? Well, even like the Augsburg Confession, for instance, you know, why is it that we even have this document and, of course, its later defense or apology? And that's because there were disputes. The dispute was between the Lutherans, who were saying that they were consistent with the historic teachings of the church and that the errors were coming from the part of the Roman Catholics. And then, of course, the Roman Catholics, who were very much in charge, who were saying, no, you're the one who's straying away from our practices. So we have the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who you know we famously say was neither holy nor Roman nor an emperor, but he's demanding the Lutherans present a public record of their teachings. And so we have the Augsburg Confession, by mostly uh, assembled by Philip Melanchthon and the Lutheran princes. They present that. They put up this defense of why their teachings are truly Catholic over and against the errors that are being taught. And what was their goal? Their goal was to confess that they were in concord, not with the contemporary church that had fallen into error, but they were in concord with the historic faith. Here in Minnesota, sometimes I've found that people can be a little wary of being too Catholic. 
And I like to tell them that, well, our confessions are all about saying that we are the OG Catholics, right? We're the ones who have not fallen into error, or at the least we're trying to correct those errors, and that's where we have these confessions. Now, Augsburg Confession gets out there, all the problems are solved, right? Well, no, because then even within Lutheran circles, there are additional controversies in the 1550s and 60s, and so they want to seek concord. So what do they do? They wrote and they established more confessional documents, like the Formula of Concord, And what's the purpose of these things? Well, is it to confess before emperors and popes what we believe? Well, sort of. But what else is it for? Well, the confessions themselves tell us. They say, we teach and confess. They say that over and over. We teach and confess. So in addition to being public symbols of what we believe, our confessions serve as the basis for what we teach our people because they are correct expositions of the Bible. So the Bible remains the norm for all of our spiritual teaching, but all of those documents, including the small and large catechisms, they are what help us pass down the faith to future generations. And really hold us to, as you said there, that tie back to the early church. You know, they were willing to put their lives on the line to stand there and give this public confession. I mean, that was really, really important for their not just concord in terms of unity, but their public witness of their faith then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, I mean, think of it from our point of view. We go to Bible study, we go to worship, we bring our kids to confirmation, but there's really, at least at the current time, nothing on the line politically. There's nothing really on the line in terms of our safety. Now, things could be getting worse and have been getting worse over time in terms of religious persecution. But for the most part, we still enjoy a freedom to say and do these things. That was not the case throughout history. And so confessions become more than just teaching books, even though they are that, but they also become part of your identity, an identity that could get yourself in trouble depending on who's in charge. Absolutely. So much more to talk about here. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we'll pick up, again, this idea of catechesis and how we go about that from its history and continuing to inform how we should look at it as a part of our Christian life today. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word every weekday from 11 to noon. We will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo about why Concord Matters for catechesis. And that's something that I kind of fumbled in the first half of the show. I got a little confused and was tripping over myself and trying to talk about the systemized catechesis, that formal catechesis that you were talking about. And it finally hit me over the break here. Maybe I just needed a break to clear my mind. 
of what I was really trying to drive at there is I think one of the struggles for us is that we hear catechesis. And I've even tried to recover that word in my own pastoral ministry. I know a lot of pastors have, but we talk about catechesis. But what people, especially in our American Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, think about is confirmation. But it would seem like that there is a difference in what we're talking about in terms of confirmation and catechesis, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, we've conflated the term confirmation, as in the rite of confirmation, with what I guess is still called confirmation classes, classes leading up to being confirmed. And catechesis, like many things, I think can be defined broadly and narrowly. Broadly, catechesis is anything we do to pass down the faith to our children and to other people as a church body. And then catechesis in the narrow sense is these confirmation classes that we do. And I'm the same with you. I like to call it catechesis instead of confirmation class or confirmation, so to speak. And one thing I always tell my confirmation students, our catechumens, maybe I should say, is that between catechesis and confirmation, only one of them is commanded in the Bible. So the rite of confirmation, which has its own storied history and has a lot to do with what I was talking about when it comes to how it developed over the first three, four, five centuries, how teaching it and then this rite of confirmation came on the scene and its importance has fluctuated throughout the years. But for us Lutherans, we don't consider it a sacrament and we don't consider it as commanded by God and it doesn't deliver grace. It doesn't deliver faith. So what's the point of it? Well, that's a question that I'll leave to your hearers to answer in terms of what's the point of confirmation, but in terms of catechesis, teaching, well, that's commanded in Scripture. And for our purposes, we do conflate that because we primarily use the small catechism and hopefully the large catechism (laughs) to teach the faith. In practice, that's because by the time of Martin Luther, the general population, even many priests— were pretty ignorant about the very basics of the faith. Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. They knew enough Latin to get through the service, but teaching was pretty lax as it came from the church. And parents weren't necessarily in a position to be able to teach their kids the way the Bible depicts. In fact, in his preface to the small catechism, Luther writes, The deplorable conditions which I recently encountered when I was a visitor constrained me to prepare this brief and simple catechism or statement of Christian teaching. And so we get a lot, we get a lot from Luther in terms of these essentials of the faith, the six chief parts of the small catechism that we teach to our children, that we teach to new members and new people into the Lutheran tradition. And at the same time, Luther has given us a style Well, he didn't really originate it, but still, he's given us a style that mimics that repetition, which is encouraged in Deuteronomy that we talked about earlier, the diligently like sharpening a knife on a whetstone. Luther wrote, begin by teaching them the Ten Commandments, the creeds, the Lord's Prayer, etc. Follow the text word for word so that the young may repeat these things after you and retain them in their memory. In the second place, after they've become familiar with the text, then teach them what it means. For this purpose, take the explanations in this booklet or choose any other brief and fixed explanations which you may prefer. 
and adhere to them without changing a single syllable as stated above with reference to the text. So not explicitly, but implicitly, you get this idea from Luther that it needs to be the same over and over again. Now, naturally, the rest of the confessions are a treasure trove of content for passing down the faith. But boy, we shouldn't neglect the small catechism or shortchange the breadth of what it teaches. It was actually through catechesis, and in particular, Martin Luther's small and large catechism, that the Reformation probably finally took hold among the common people. We owe it to these small documents that we are able to so fearlessly confess our faith today. Charles Arend actually wrote that Luther's small catechism secured the revelation for the Reformer. He, his actual words are, Following its publication, the small catechism was the most used pedagogical, theological, and confessional text among Lutherans for the next 450 years. And I would argue that it's um, not just used among Lutherans. It's used among lots of small church bodies around the world or small churches around the world that are looking for a simple explanation of the faith. So it's certainly a good place to start when it comes to catechizing our children. And what you brought out there, too, I think, gets us out of kind of the trouble that we have today, as you talked about as well, in the conflation of confirmation and catechesis together. And I like how you kind of just left our listeners, uh, and you had me as well, too, answering, you know, what is the place of confirmation? And maybe it does still have a place, but we can just think about that a little more maybe, too. But when we come back to understand here that the catechesis is something that begins with that organic passing it on, as you talked about, and continues to, to develop us all the way along, that gets us out of the trouble of what we've built up confirmation to be. And to kind of give a little flesh to what I'm thinking out here, in the dual parish that I serve here, there's a beautiful tradition when I came that I really love and have retained. And that's at the baptism of a child, an infant, we provide the family with Luther's small catechism and very intentionally encourage them. This is the pattern of sound words to begin teaching to your children. You're going to be teaching them words. I have a two-year-old and also a six-month-old in the house right now. Our two-year-old, we're constantly teaching him words. This is what this is called and try to get him to repeat that and things like that. We can do the same thing with the catechism, right? Teach them those words. It's great sound words. And when that develops, when that catechesis develops, then we get away from the problems of the confirmation that I'm sure you've experienced too, is that you get them to confirmation age and they really know very little about their faith. They just don't even have the words and the vocabulary. Right. Well, Luther's method is about giving them that vocabulary and then inserting or giving it meaning later. And I would say not just Luther's, but the Bibles itself. This is how the scriptures talk about passing down the faith. Even in Moses' day, he's talking about, teach these to your children, and then one of these days they're going to ask, well, what does it mean that we do this? And then you give meaning to what they've learned. And I think that we often, a lot of people argue against teaching their kids early because they say that they'll not understand complex ideas. I've had adults complain, well, I don't understand them, so I don't know how they're going to understand them. And the idea there is that you meet them where they're at. So you start with the vocabulary of the faith that they can use to then build upon as they become more mature in the faith. So one way I like to talk about parents catechizing their children is to remind parents that they are always teaching. 
some parents have this notion that they're unable to teach, right? They're like, well, I'm not a teacher or I'm not a theologian. But parents are always teaching their kids, as I said before, good or bad. So one example that I use is that of a sports fan, right? So consider a father who, let's say he's a fan of the Green Bay Packers or whatever sports team you like. People always get hung up when I say a particular sports team. So let's say he wants his children to be fans too. Well, whether he realizes it or not, he's catechizing his children to be Packers fans. But he doesn't do it by setting aside an hour each week to teach his children about the basics of football and the importance of team loyalty or why rooting for his team makes sound logical sense. He doesn't send his children once a week to a class taught by, you know, an assistant football coach. When his children reach a certain age, he, he certainly doesn't contact the head coach to evaluate his children to determine if they're ready to be fans. No, instead, he simply lives out his life as a fan, and he models what it looks like to be faithful to his particular team. He talks about football in casual conversation. He introduces his children to watching or attending football games. He sits with them, and they experience it together. He answers his kids' questions about field goals and downs and interceptions while offering up his own commentary on what makes his team so great. And as his children grow older, they begin to follow their father's example. And at some point, they may be ready to play football, or even if not, they've grown up hearing about it or seeing their father speak and act and even dress like a particular football fan. And so more often than not, because of their exposure to their fathers, and maybe I should say also mothers or anyone's dutiful and continual catechesis, his children will take on more responsibility for learning about football on their own. And then in time, like their parents, they'll don that green and gold or whatever color, and they'll sit with their own children and pass down what they've learned. So now all analogies have limits, but that is the organic teaching of the faith that parents should be involved with, and they do it all the time, whether it's the love of football or a love of music or whatever they support in that child's life, be it sports or academics, the parents are always encouraging their children to learn and teaching them, and so they should be putting that same amount of effort into their faith. I think that's a great example. And that makes me think that you could extend that metaphor even a little bit into like when you're living in unfriendly territory, shall we say, because interesting, you should use the Packers when you're a pastor in Minnesota now, <laughs> but uh, I'll use my own. So I have roots in Texas. I'm a University of Texas Longhorn fan, but I live in Southern Illinois now. So it's going to make the work more challenging for me to raise my son as a Longhorn fan. You know, he's growing up surrounded by a culture and people that don't cheer for the Longhorns. That's going to be confusing for him. And he's not going to be getting much support for that from his peers and the people around him as he grows up. So that means if I want my son to be a Longhorn fan, I need to make real sure that I'm doing those things that you said as a natural part of our family life. I mean, if I only watch a game once a year or every so often and certainly living a thousand miles away from there, we aren't going to be able to go to too many games. And if I hardly ever talk about it with him or wear the team apparel, I mean, first of all, could I even be considered a fan at that point, let alone should I really be surprised when someday he doesn't turn out to be a Longhorn fan, which I think is sort of the thing that has happened in the church. But I like the metaphor you use because it does help us see we do this all the time and we should do it with the faith. This catechesis should be a natural part of our family life. Absolutely, right. And the other important thing to take away from this is that parents nowhere in Scripture are commanded to leave their spiritual training of their children up to the faith community or the spiritual leader. 
So instead, God commanded parents to train up their children to treasure the history of his activity on earth and to strive to walk in his will, in his ways. So this is why we have in the fourth commandment, children are commanded to obey their parents. So when one understands the role of parents as representatives of God to their children, the fourth, something like the fourth commandment makes sense. It becomes all the more noteworthy. Even in the large catechism, Luther touted the special distinction that parents have in their vocation to raise up children in the faith. He explained that God directed children to revere parents because of their role in this way of representing God. And I think it's important that when parents recognize their role to pass down the faith, that they recognize that it's not just about, you know, sitting down even with the small catechism, but rather living out the Bible, living out their small catechism around their children, because children are savvy. They know if a parent is not really active in worship and not really in the Word themselves, but suddenly thinks it's really important for them to go to confirmation class, kids aren't going to have that same respect for confirmation or catechesis or anything else because they're following their parents' lead. Right, and you've got me thinking about this, and the reason I brought that example in of sports fandom and things like that is because it really does come out in this way. We recognize in Scripture we're called to be in the world but not of the world. Well, how does that happen apart from intentional catechesis, especially in the home and the example of the parents? That becomes so, so important because we are going to be divided. And I'm not just talking about children raised and taught in public education or, you know, those are the challenges that we face all around us. And you can weigh out how to be faithful in all of those for your own family, but it's got to begin in the home, right? Because we're naturally a part of of the sports allegiances that I kind of brought in, right? It's a tough task that we're facing. Well, absolutely. I mean, how much time are our kids catechized by the world in various things? And how much time are we intentionally teaching our children about the faith? And I think a lot of good and well-meaning and faithful parents are leaving this up to the church. But even Luther recognized the important role that parents played. A favorite quote of mine is, he says, doctrinal sermons in the church do not edify young people but rather quizzes at home and definitions in the catechism and questions concerning the confession of faith are of much greater benefit. And of course, it wasn't any easier for parents in his day or pastors in his day, because he continues, they are, of course, troublesome, but they are very necessary. So it's hard work. It's hard work being the example that you need to be. And sometimes that example means repenting to your children about your failures or your inability to raise them as you should be. But regardless, you need to be taking that time to study yourself. And that's where this idea of does catechesis end with confirmation? Well, no. Catechesis should be a lifelong endeavor. So parents themselves need to be lifelong students of the faith. Even Luther says that he was a lifelong student of the small catechism. He wrote, and here's another quote, I too am a theologian who has attained a fairly good practical knowledge and experience of Holy Scriptures through various dangers. Okay, understated, but sure. He says, but I do not so glory in this gift as not to join my children daily in prayerfully reciting the catechism. He considered that he was a lifelong student of the very little document that he wrote because he didn't really write it. He just assembled the teachings of the faith into that small little document. 
And again, brings us back to where you began us with what you brought in from Deuteronomy there of this lifelong endeavor. It's connected to that diligence. It's not something that just ends at confirmation, but continues for us and becomes that example of the diligence and how we continually go about it with our children is because we're continually doing it for ourselves. Well, right. And not only for ourselves, but even though he said that it may not edify young people, he still commended the teaching of the catechism to pastors too. And so I think we as pastors need to take on that role of making sure that we are constantly catechizing the children of God put into our care. Luther wrote that those should be regarded as the best and most useful teachers, he's talking about pastors, who are able to drill the catechism well. One must necessarily forever hammer home these brief lessons to the common people. And that forever hammer home certainly gives us the idea of shaping gold into something useful or honing a knife into something that's sharp. And so this is what the role of parents are for their children, pastors are for their congregations. And the benefits that we get from it is a mutual understanding of our faith. And we are united. We are in concord whenever catechesis is done thoroughly and done well. Which I think serves to make this point really well, too, that, as you say, the pastors are setting this example. And I think one of the terms that we've lost in especially American Lutheranism is using father for our pastors. Of course, we see that as very Roman Catholic. You addressed some of that earlier as well. But once again, it does mimic this point as well, that all the way back to what you began us with Moses, right? Moses comes down and he gives the teaching. And he says, this is what God wants you to do as parents. And as you model that, I'm going to be modeling it to you. And you see this continual pattern. And that's how we pass things down. That's how we continue to commend the faith, which has been a highlight on this show many times is that's what the Lutheran confessions are all about. And that's certainly what Luther's catechisms were all about, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, let's think about who is the ultimate catechist, and that is God himself. He's the source of all faith and knowledge. He's the primary catechist who teaches all people through his word. But God uses means. He uses instruments to accomplish his work in this world. And so throughout the Bible, we see God consistently commanding prophets, and we would say pastors, to share his word of revelation with others. And then he directs his people to pass down to their children both the stories of his work throughout history and also his teachings and his statutes. And so the whole testimony of Scripture shows us an ordering in the way that God intended for us to pass down the faith. Now, if we're neglecting any element of that, say parents are leaving it up to the church, or the church, I should say, is allowing parents to leave it up to them, then we're missing out on part of that ordering that God established. On the other hand, the pastor can't just say, well, this is the parent's job and therefore they need to do it well. No, the pastor has a responsibility in there too. So it's this symbiotic relationship where church and home are coming together to make sure that there's unity across the board. One of the struggles that I had when I did go, you mentioned my doctoral work, when I went, to, uh, I went to Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's a, a university that's in the Baptist tradition and a seminary too, and most of the other doctoral students in my program were a variety of different faith traditions. In fact, I was sort of the token Lutheran. And one thing I noticed so much was that which I had experienced as a kid, 
so much division between fellow Christians because of the lack of common confessions. Now, a lot of these church bodies do have their own sets of confessions, but some of them say, oh, well, we don't believe in creeds at all. We don't believe in confessions. We just believe in the Bible. So when you see so much division amongst the church body and you see so much division in the world, you know, it makes you understand just how important Concordia is, just how important being in concord with one another is. And that's why confessions and catechesis are so important. So then, as you've done your doctoral work in this, and I think this is something good to work in here, obviously we could go read your uh, dissertation on this and things, uh, but give us just a brief kind of view then. How do we do that? How do we catechize? What's a good model? Just kind of give us a broad sketch of that for how we can seek that unity in a world that is constantly pulling us into disunity and certainly the devil hounding us in this as well. How do we faithfully set about to catechize our children? Well, ultimately, it is a cooperative effort. In fact, I called my dissertation Cooperative Catechesis, right? Enabling or equipping pastors and parents to raise up children in the faith. And so the takeaway from it is that a lot of pastors think that parents don't want to teach their children. And that's what I went into it thinking. I went into the whole process thinking, you know what? I bet that most parents are just leaving this up to the churches, just like they leave up all this education to the school system. And I'm going to find a lot of apathetic parents who really don't want to have anything to do with confirmation or teaching their kids or catechesis or any of those things. And what I found instead is that most of the parents that I interviewed were eager to teach their kids the faith. And that's sort of, I don't know why it shouldn't have, but I don't know why, but it did surprise me. They're eager, but what they didn't feel is that they didn't feel like they were equipped to. They felt like they were not teachers or unable to do it. And so one of the things that's important is that parents are being equipped by their churches and their pastors to be able to teach their children. So it's not just about making sure parents know the basics as they should, but also about giving them that support and the expectation that they're going to be doing these things at home. So what I envisioned was a model whereby parents were the primary catechists early on giving their children these basic building blocks of the faith, the language of the faith, as Luther would say. And then the second phase would be sort of the formal catechesis process whereby you have confirmation classes and other rites of passage. And then in that case, it would be the pastors taking the lead or catechists, church workers taking the lead, and the parents would be in a supportive role. And then after that, in sort of a stage three, is post-confirmation catechesis so that we're, we're recognizing the need for continual learning. And in those cases, you still have the parents involved because now we have kids who are post-eighth grade, going into high school, going into college, and do we really want our kids going into college or even high school in some cases with an eighth grade understanding of their faith? And the answer is no. That process of teaching needs to continue, and it needs to be done from both the pastor and the parent's point of view. At the end of the day, parents have the most access to their kids of any peer group or any other group or pastor, teacher, any of that. 
And so we need to be equipping those parents to be able to take on this role. And like I said, what I found is a lot of them wanted to. They just didn't feel equipped. Which is the importance for that diligence that we continually be equipped, that we seek out those resources and that the church come alongside the parents to equip them. I think that's an excellent format for us. And so much more that could be said on this. Coming into the last just couple minutes here, it seems like I run into this with every episode, but I want to give you at least a chance here to give us your parting thoughts as we've taken a look today at why Concord matters for catechesis. What would you say? Why does Concord matter in the world that we're living in today for catechesis? Well, first of all, in our divided world, right, even in the division that happens in the Christian world, the need for Concord and unity is just greater than ever. But we need to be unified in something. We can't just be unified around the idea of being unified because that's not true solidarity. That's not true concord. So the unity we have rests on the proper training and teaching of believers to know what is true, to know what the Bible teaches, to know what to unify around. I'll leave you with another quote from Luther. And when we talk about this final stage of catechesis continuing throughout the life of the Christian, Luther himself, in the large catechism, set an example for us to follow. He writes, Every morning, and whenever else I have time, I read and recite word for word the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Psalms, etc. I must still read and study the catechism daily. And if Luther, who assembled this catechism, says that, then we certainly don't have any excuse. That is well said. Thank you, Pastor Phil Boo. It's been a great pleasure, as always, having you join us again for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord matters for catechesis. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. Until next time, keep confessing, church.